Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. And as we have been reading through the book of Exodus, uh, with each of these readings, seeing the people uh, brought out of slavery in Egypt and now brought to Mount Sinai, and with a lot of instructions about what they're to do moving forward. And, uh, and this is part of where we are this morning, Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Um, before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. God, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you together. We thank you for your word which you've given to us. And God, we pray that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed to be those who have ears to hear, who have minds to think, and who have hearts that are ready to receive your word like a good soil with seed falling on it. Well, that we would be those who find our life in you, stay connected to Jesus, and bear much fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for, for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Turning then to our gospel reading this morning, Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. This is uh, some of the things that Jesus said. Uh, you can just, I guess, decide for yourselves how this um, would have been received at the time or how it might even be received today uh, for people to hear this message. Here we go. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17, says, He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of, his, of people from all over Judea, from, Jer- from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. 
Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, turning then now to our sermon text, we are actually in a series going all the way through the book of First Corinthians. This is Paul writing, the Apostle Paul writing a letter uh, to the church in Corinth, and it was a church that is uh, a group of people who are wanting to follow Jesus together, and yet uh, they are being influenced and pushed by a culture that's not following Jesus. And so there have been ways in which they have gotten off track, that they are looking more like the culture than they are like Jesus. And so what do you say to such a, a group of people? And this is where uh, this letter of 1 Corinthians um, is so helpful um, in, for not just them and that time, but for Christians of all times who have found themselves in uh, similar situations, even though some of the details there might be different. Um, and what we looked at last week, uh, he actually started in verse uh, chapter 11. One of the things he said uh, was in verse 2, where he says, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding the traditions just as I passed them on to you. And so he had given them, hey, Good job, well done on that. And it's almost like you can sense what's coming next, can't you? You ever have one of those? Where somebody's like, hey, I just want you to tell you, you did a great job on this. But. (laughs) But there's something else coming right along behind that. And that is what is coming. In fact, in verse 17, this is when we already had some of that last week, but then we get some more. Verse 17, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Ugh. What a knife to the heart, right? These people are gathering together, and the whole idea is that they are going to be worshiping God together, that they are going to be following Jesus together. And he says, actually, because of how you're doing what you're doing, you're doing more harm than good. You're actually causing more problems than giving solutions. You're actually keeping people away from Jesus instead of bringing them to Jesus. Ugh. Specifically, here's what he's talking about. He said, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Oh, no doubt. There have to be differences among you. To show, uh, to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when, when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant. In my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Now, in that last line a little frustrating? Like, no, just write it all down. Write it all down now so we no. When I come, I'll give further directions. But he does say, even though he doesn't say maybe everything we'd like him to say here, he does say an awful lot. And, um, and of course, what this is talking about is the way in which the Christian church is to be different from the rest of the world. Let me ask you this. In society at large, whether you're thinking Corinthian society or contemporary society, in society at large, do people tend to have ways of showing and displaying who the important people are and who the not important people are? Does that seem to be a thing? Was it back then? Absolutely. Is it now? Absolutely. And what Paul is talking about is how he's saying that was something that was going on in Corinthian society, and then the church was meeting together, and they were continuing to make sure everybody knew where those lines were. Who are the important people? And who aren't the important people? And he said, and you're doing this, not just like as you're gathering together, but like you're gathering together to actually partake of the Lord's Supper. And you're using the Lord's Supper as a way to create division and hierarchy among you. And he said, guess what? That's not the Lord's Supper. That's not what it's about. That's not what it is uh, intended to produce. And so what you're doing is actually you're using this. You might use the same, you know, you're using bread, you're using wine, whatever. You might have the right words you're saying. But if you're doing it like that, this is why he says you're, uh, uh, what are the words? Your meetings do more harm than good. Think about this. You have people who are gathering together to have fellowship with one another, fellowship with Christ, communion with one another and with Christ. And when they come together, there are people in their midst who are like, yeah, but not you. And so it pushes them away. That do more harm or good. The whole idea and, and not only that, not only does it do harm to the people who are pushed away, it does harm to the people who are doing the pushing, doesn't it? Because there's an arrogance there. There's an elevation that makes them think that they're better than other people. That's not of Christ. And so uh, they're using even the Lord's Supper to maintain the divisions of society instead of using the Lord's Supper 
as what actually should be breaking down all the divisions of society, bringing people together from whatever societal position they have. You may have heard the, um, the saying before that everyone is equal at the foot of the cross, right? And so, you know, we look at all these high and low kinds of things. Um, and in fact, in Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord, he, uh, yeah, just, uh, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice, calling, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads uh, shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Now, around here, we don't see a lot of mountains. <laughs> around here, we don't see a lot of valleys. And so some of this kind of gets lost on us. But when we're looking at uh, what it would mean for the valleys to be filled in and the mountains to be made low, think about that in terms of travel. If you're trying to get... You know, I am always absolutely amazed that California has people in it. Not for the reasons you're thinking. I am amazed that California has people in it because I've been to the Rocky Mountains. Have you been to the Rocky Mountains? Have you been to the Rocky Mountains in a covered wagon? <laughs> How is anybody in California? <laughs> going, going over the Rocky Mountains is much more difficult than making it across Kansas, right? <laughs> the mountains make it difficult. The valleys make it difficult. But a flat plain, and you can go. <laughs> and so I'm not surprised that anybody made it across Kansas. I'm really surprised anybody made it past Colorado. And, uh, and what this is saying, in, in Israel, it's similar. There's so much up and down of, uh, of the terrain that travel is difficult to get from place to place. But what if, what if the valleys actually got filled in? What if the mountains got made low? What if it all became level? How does travel happen? Pretty easily. But what was the point of the easier travel? It was so that all people will see God's salvation. So that people would be able to come to God, that there wouldn't be these barriers in the way. And, um, and if we think about that in terms of uh, sort of how we tend to operate in society of the important people and the not important people and that kind of thing, what if in the church we didn't have signs of any kind of important people or not important people? What if when you gather as a church, what we have is a sign, it's like, um, what was it, the King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table? What if we all sat around the one round table <laughs> so that the symbolism of what we're doing together is that in the eyes of God, we are all equal in value and importance in the way in which he loves us. But it was pretty easy for them back then to carry into the life of the church, the life of the culture. It was easy for them to carry into the life of the church the divisions that were promoted by the culture. And it was easy for them in the church to, to believe that the culture had it right 
and that Jesus had it wrong. To believe that there really were people who were more important and there really were people who were less important. So they operate that way. And what Paul is saying as he writes to them, he says, if, if you actually want to celebrate the Lord's Supper instead of the suppers like you have in your culture, then it's going to have to be different. It's going to have to look different. It's going to have to look a lot more like Jesus who associated with people of high position and of low position. And if you look at the ways that he interacts with them, he just treats them all like people. He treats them all like people who are, have been created by God, who are loved by God, but who have gone astray and who need to be brought back and who all need a savior to bring them back. Everyone equal at the foot of the cross. It says this is then part of what we're doing as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, I think there's a, an interesting image You've ever seen um, the the pulse kind of meter in the hospital where it's taken track and you got the the heartbeat monitor kind of thing, and so you you get your ups and downs and jagged line all that. And what happens when someone dies? Flat line. We all know that term, flat line. That's what we're talking about. That on the heartbeat monitor, it goes flat. I don't think Paul had ever seen a heartbeat monitor when he wrote this, and yet I think that's still a good image for us. When he says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we're thinking about those highs and lows and then flat lines, <laughs> it's almost like everything low has gone up. Everything high has gone down. Everything made level. But the reason he's actually saying this, so I think it makes a good image, but the reason he's saying this is that, uh, I, th- I mean, think about this. We're eating this bread and drinking this cup. We're proclaiming, he doesn't say, you're proclaiming uh, the glory of God. Though we are. He doesn't say we're, pro- we're proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Though we are. He says you're proclaiming the Lord's death. Why does he say that? Does that seem weird? A little dark? Because that gets us to the heart of the gospel. It gets us to the way in which God has displayed his glory in a shocking way. That it was a very different way than what the world tends to glorify. When we see Jesus, who did nothing to deserve death on the cross, willingly going to the cross, and as he hangs there dying, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is a very different way than how things operate in society at large, right? whether in the Corinthian society, in the Jewish society, Roman society, or modern society. But he says, this is what we are proclaiming. We are proclaiming that we are people who are united 
in the death of Christ. And we said earlier, as our declaration of forgiveness, if we have died with Christ, we shall also live with him. So we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. The problem is that's not how they were living. The church in Corinth was actually bringing their sinful divisions into the Lord's Supper and making that a part of it. More harm than good. It would be easy for us then to say, aren't we glad we're not like them? And pat ourselves on the back with pride and then celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that would be to miss the whole point. And instead, I think we're, uh, we'd be better off doing to take a moment, look around the room, like with your eyeballs if you want, or just think through <laughs> if you don't want to be staring at people. <laughs> think through who is present in our midst. And think about who it is that you're tempted to feel like, I bet God loves me more than them. And then take a moment to repent. And then likewise, again, scan the room and consider who it is where you kind of feel like, I bet they think they're better than me. And that God loves them more than me. And then take a moment to forgive. Paul continues he talks about this and says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. There is debate over pretty much everything in the Bible. But there is debate over what does he mean when he says, without discerning the body of Christ. What does that mean? And given the context here, I think one of the meanings is pretty clear. I think there are multiple. But one of them is pretty clear. That it is the body of Christ as the church that is united as his body. And as we take communion, this is one of the things that we are participating in, is life in Christ as his body. And if we miss that, and we think it's just about me and Jesus, and we can take communion and ignore our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we can take communion as a way of feeling superior to other people, it says we're eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. That's not participating in that life in Christ, which actually comes as participating in his death. That self-sacrifice for the good of others. And so, um, there is a lot more 
that could be said. But just like Paul, I'm not going to say it all. He concludes, when I come, I will give further directions so we can talk about this more in the future. Um, But for now, let's spend some time reflecting personally on what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, what it means to proclaim the Lord's death as we partake in uh, the way in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.